the Reading Corner today, I'm delighted to be welcoming Joanna Nadin. We're going to be talking about her recently published novel, which is called No Man's Land. And it is perhaps a bit of a departure from other things that I've read by Joanna. So I'm really looking forward to getting into the nitty gritty and talking about this hard hitting novel, which still has plenty of humour in it, I'm pleased uh, to say. Anyway, first things first, welcome into the Reading Corner. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. I wanted to start whether we could just set up the story for our listeners. It's set in a future, but possibly not so far in the future. (laughs) No, it's set a few years only from now, although it was a now where I imagined that Brexit had happened, which obviously it did, but that Trump was still in power and Britain had effectively joined forces with America against Europe. Britain now being Albion, um, having had an election won by a sort of Nigel Farage character. So we've swung far, far to the right, farther than we are at the moment, basically. But it is, it's a world that's entirely recognisable, except for place names which have gone back to the old English versions. Otherwise, it's it's not dissimilar to the world we're, we're, we'd find ourselves now living in. Things like the RAC map of Britain are antiques, as it were, because obviously, although the topography is the same, Uh, borders, boundaries, roads, rails are sort of running slightly differently. Uh, Can you tell us about the expanse of Albion? Because it doesn't cover everything that is now currently Britain. No, it doesn't. It's effectively England with Cornwall's not, not part of it. Cornwall has long fought for its independence. And so that's a kind of it's not no man's land itself. The no man's land of the novel is the Tamar estuary, the border between Devon and Cornwall, because on one side is Albion and on the other side is Curnow, which is the old Cornish name for Cornwall. And Scotland, which is now Caledonia and Wales, which is Wales, are similarly distinct. What I wanted to make sure was, which is part of the thing that runs through the whole book, is that there isn't a goodie and there isn't a baddie. It's not that Albion is good or bad and that Cornwall is good or bad. There are heroes and villains in both places. And just because Cornwall isn't part of Albion doesn't make them brilliant. So this is less about specific places and more about trends in yes. what we might see on a world stage rather than a local or national stage, although that's obviously part of it. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned No Man's Land, uh, this community in the estuary. So if Albion is a sort of dystopia, No Man's Land, which could also be No Man's Land, as in then it's mainly run by women. It is, exactly. (laughs) It is run by women (laughs) in the estuary. Tell us a little bit about this kind of utopia that you've created. It is in a way a utopia, although... For me, it absolutely wasn't. It's a farming community. They raise and then kill their own livestock. 
And while I, that's how I was raised, I grew up farming and our school had a farm and it's something I loved. I'm really not an outdoorsy person now. I had to go to my best friend to learn, who runs forest schools, to learn how to make a fire, to learn to make nettle thread and things like that. So it wasn't, it isn't a utopia to me. And it certainly isn't to Alan and Sam, who've grown up in the city. They've grown up in Bristol or Brigstow. What it does offer is a positive alternative way of living to what's going on in the rest of the world. It's very much a community run. There is no single person in charge. There's no saviour. It's it's all about this community. And it's a difficult community, but it is one that offers refuge to anyone who is seen as different by Albion, who is one female, who's seen as different of a different race, of... Um, non-binary gender, perhaps all of these different ways of being that are still frowned on. Life there is difficult, but it is safe and loving, and that's that's the point of it, I think. And that's what they the boys come to realise. Though Sam, who's much younger, he's he's five, I think, at the beginning, takes to it because it's a holiday for him and there's animals. For Alan, it's a shock. It's away from his father, who he loves, and there's no computers, there's no video games, there's none of that, and it is a bit of a shock for them. Mm. I think we're going to have to backtrack a little bit and say something about Alan and Sam Maybe just tell us about the beginning of the story and why they're being sent away. What happens is Albion is on the verge of World War Three, and there's a definite sense of impending danger and of um, men being conscripted into an army. And some children are being sent away to safety. Alan and Sam's dad works for the government. He works for an, an, an effective equivalent to GCHQ in Cheltenham, and it is in Cheltenham. Albion Interception, who deal with in, intercepting messages from the enemy, basically. So he knows what is coming, and knowing what is coming, he decides to secretly evacuate Alan and Sam to what he sees as a place of safety to a friend of the boy's mum. The mum died giving birth to Sam, so Sam doesn't even know his mum. And that's why they're they're being sent away. And their dad says, I'm going to come and fetch you. Don't worry. Yeah, and it's a shame. It's his birthday coming up. And, you know, it's only two weeks away and he thinks that will be it. Dad will come and rescue him after that. I think this would be a good time to pause and just have a reading from that first section of the novel, just to get a flavour. Of course, I'll read, yeah, it is. I'll read you the first section called Heroes and Villains. I used to think I knew about heroes, that some wore fancy outfits and flexed bulging muscles and had special powers like invisibility or flight or flames from their fingertips. The others wore uniforms and fought for the country with guns and rockets or carried babies out of burning buildings. It turns out not all heroes wear capes and not all heroes carry guns. It turns out it's not so easy to tell them and the baddies apart, neither. Because real life isn't like on the telly or in films. Villains don't go around cackling madly and flashing their tattoos. They come in pretending to be your friend and promising you stuff so you're tricked into thinking they're the good ones after all. And the real heroes? They can slip in and out without you even noticing and fight with their wile and their wits and their kindness instead of weapons. And they might be skinny as a stick and dressed in a t-shirt and just a kid, but I didn't know that then. 
I just knew the world was changing and I wanted it to stop. It started with Mrs King. Actually, that's not totally true. It started ages ago when the Albioneers won the election, maybe before even, before I was born, when England decided it didn't like Europe anymore and then there was graffiti on the co-op wall telling anyone who wasn't white or the right kind of white to go home, even though home was here. Then home changed its name anyway, turned into Albion and it wasn't the same for any of us. That's what Dad would say anyway. But dad wasn't around for half the story and he's not telling it. I am. So I say it started with Mrs. King, least for Sam and me. She'd been teaching us about World War One and the soldiers in the trenches whose feet got rotten and the rats as big as cats that tried to eat the dead bodies. Ahmed said the soldiers should have eaten the rats and Jaden Nesbitt said he would say that. So Ahmed said, what's that supposed to mean? Jaden said, you know what that means and called him a dirty word. And Mrs King said that was enough and that no one ate anyone and that this kind of attitude was how world wars started. So Ahmed said, actually, she said some man called Franz Ferdinand getting shot was what started the war. Mrs King said, not some man. He was the Archduke, Ahmed. And Franz Ferdinand was just the tipping point. The arguing was the build up. Wars don't come from nowhere. And then no one spoke for a bit. And the air in the room felt fat and dangerous because we all knew war might be coming again. It had been on the news. We weren't allowed news in our house because of most of it being fake. But Ahmed told me, so I knew too. Sam didn't. He was only five and he mainly cared about Marvel and DC and dinosaurs. But I was 10 and old enough for truth. At least I thought so. Like I knew Cassius Barker from our class hadn't moved school, he'd been sent to his uncle in Trinidad because it was safer there. And I knew that Olivia Mickelson, who used to work with Dad at Albion Interception, had gone back to Denmark. And I knew that the Patels from number 44 had gone to Bangladesh and all. And I knew that the war wouldn't be loud and clattering with guns and bombs and trenches this time. It would be stealthy and silent and sneaking at night when you weren't expecting it. It was confusing too, who was good and who was bad and whose side I was meant to be on, Albion's side or the rest of the world's. I'd asked Dad to explain it and he said it was more complicated than that and that there were good people and bad people in all the countries and some people even had good and bad inside them and to just get on with being a kid maybe for a bit. Finally, Mrs King smiled wide and real. She said we'd probably done enough war for the day and we should get on with our painting of important people which was of a scientist called Marie Curie and a writer called Maya Angelou and a girl called Rosa Parks who'd sat on the wrong bit of the bus which was brave because she was black so we did. Only Ahmed and Jaden argued about where Ahmed should sit on the bus which Jaden said was in the driver's seat and Ahmed said was in the bus company headquarters owning all the buses in the world and Mrs King was just telling them to pack it in when Paris Metcalf from next door spilt pink paint all over her shoes and started crying because they were expensive and her mum would kill her. And Mrs King said she'd clean them up so they were good as new. And by the time she was done, they almost were. Then it was home time and she said, goodbye, everyone. See you all tomorrow, like she always does. And I didn't even say bye back and nor did anyone else because we were too pleased to get out and play football or cricket or just eat crisps or whatever. But I should have. We all should, because even though we didn't realise it at the time, Mrs King was our tipping point. She was our Franz Ferdinand, because the next day she was gone. 
lovely Mrs. King, uh, who we all yes. recognize from so many classrooms. And of course, what happens next is that their lovely mural full of these people who are no longer considered appropriate. Full of these women who are, they are no all women. considered appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a bit about how women are perceived in the novel. Women are second class citizens. I mean, I, I know we really are already to an extent, although things have improved massively. We are still so far behind. But here they are demoted, not quite to the same extent that we're seeing women in Afghanistan um, have to go backwards. But they're not allowed out without being chaperoned. Um, they are not allowed to take the important jobs they are seen as needing protection. They're not allowed to speak out. Their voices are kept down, basically, for fear of um, sedition, I suppose, for fear of inciting, not violence necessarily, but anyone going against Albion. And the boys have grown up without a mother. They've grown up in a, an entirely male household. So I think they probably haven't noticed it. They haven't noticed the presence of women. It's not until they go to no man's land that they suddenly realise the importance of female community around them. Mm. There's a point that really hit me hard in the novel where Paris's dad refers to the boys as being like bloody girls. And at that point, Paris, who is a girl, parrots what her dad says. I think that's one of the things I find hardest is it's not just the men holding women back it's the women who allow it and the fact that these attitudes while I have huge hope in future generations these appalling attitudes are still encouraged by certain sectors in their children and I've seen it with watching my own daughter grow up at school the appalling sexism and even violence towards girls it especially at secondary level is is shocking mm. You obviously have very strong views and, and thoughts about this, which are infused through the novel, but it is a story at the end of the day. And I wonder whether you have to sort of guard against didacticism when you really do feel so strongly about something. Oh, gosh, of course you do. There is no you can't win an argument by by saying truth for a start. It, it doesn't work like that. And it is. It's the first time I've written something so overtly political and it was written. I used to work in politics and I felt mm. completely impotent when the Brexit vote happened because I was no longer in Westminster. And I knew my only weapon is, is writing for children and, and trying to change even just one mind of a future generation. But like I say, you don't do that by dictating this is wrong and this is right. And so it was very important to me to show that within both sides of the society, there are people who are actually not that nice within the, the goodies. The aunt is a very difficult woman and they eventually meet a woman on the train later who's an Albionier, but she's really kind to them. And I wanted to make this very clear that we all, I know he says some people contain good and bad. I think we all do. We all contain good or bad in us and we can go either way depending on how we're encouraged and it's about making choices that help everyone. And I'm trying to slowly get to that whilst I am trying to make some points about the way women are treated. But 
I'm trying to align with Alan. So it's a slow process of realization Mm -hmm. rather than a, this is right and this is wrong. I'm aiming for dialecticism, (laughs) Brechtian dialectic, which I I studied at university. I'm aiming for that. So to bring it back to the novel, do you see that writing for children in this way is part of a channel of communication to open up other ways of thinking about the world? Absolutely. No matter what you write, when you write for children, you are offering up a version of the world for children. You are saying this is a world you might want to live in or might not. You're giving them new lives to try on for size and saying, what's the, what kind of world do you want to, it to be? And here is how you might play a part in that. You're, for me, children's books are a little tiny sliver of hope and of potential change. And so they are, even when I'm writing silly, funny things, you're seeing ways that you might do something differently or I don't normally write very, very political books, but I do always write books about identity and about finding out who you are, I think. Mm. And this is a much more overt version in that it's offering up a very clear alternative world to the one that is Albion and which is the one we're living in to an extent. And it's saying there are other ways to live. And that's not necessarily let's all return to the land and eat rabbits. That's obviously not (laughs) a possible thing, but it's just saying there might be something different and you can play a part in that. Don't just go on what your parents are saying. Listen to the voices of others around you whether that's in your classroom or whether that's in books Mm. try to work out for yourself Mm. where the right is coming from yeah so finding the story in that you've got a cast we've talked about Alan and Sam but there's a cast of other characters that help you to communicate that story Uh, Noah and Poppy the aunts that live on the island I'd like to know a little bit more about them and how they help to propel the story yeah if you like so tell us a bit about Poppy. Both Poppy Poppy and Noah are actually named for two of my friend's children and look (laughs) exactly like them in my head. The story actually started without the dystopia long before Brexit I'd wanted for a long time to write a story about two brothers who were sent away to somewhere they didn't want to be and I didn't know if that was an evacuation story or if it was just they were sent to live with a nan they didn't like. I, I just, that was the premise of something. And then it joined together with this sort of post-Brexit vote apocalyptic <laughs> feeling that I had. And I think I knew very early on that the community would be female. And, and that's partly, I have a huge number of female friends who are in, in positions of, in strong positions and feeling very belittled. And I wanted there to be a still a family feeling. I wanted the family set up. So we do have Poppy and Noah and Minnow, their half-sister and their mother and the aunt and Mr Minton and Leon. So there's this sort of strange make-do family, which was another thing I wanted, that families aren't two adults, two children they're mixed, they're messy now. And that's a good thing as well. So they are going from one very tiny family with two boys and their dad into this bigger, more loose community into which women come and go a lot, as does the father of Minnow, 
um, John, who's in and out because he's dealing contraband over to and getting supplies in and running messages and basically generally being a useful man. I wanted someone sympathetic. I wanted Alan to have an ally there who is clearly Poppy from the off. She's she's older than him and she's a capable, clever, fun girl. Alan, of course, looks up to Noah. Noah is older. He's 16. He's the boy. He is without his dad as well. So Alan feels a kinship with him. And I want him to be torn between Poppy and Noah and try to see the good and the bad in both of those children as well. So they were, they're all in fact based on friends and and real people although um in my head Judy Dench plays the the matriarch who they end up staying in the house with and Tony Collette plays the mother of Poppy and Noah um I have to cast before I can write at all so they are very real um family but they are they are set up as foils to be able to again sort of express this idea that we don't know who is good and who is bad, and maybe we all have that potential. It's it's our actions, and we're we're constantly faced with choices, and it's what we decide to do that makes us fall on either side of that line. So we've talked a little bit about themes and ideas, what it's about. We've talked about this idea of an image of a family and what a family is. Neither of those things on their own make a story. So you have to create a story from that. And yours has got a three-part structure. Did that come quite late then, the story idea? I think it sort of did in a way. I knew I had to get them down to this community. And I knew at some point that I have to get them out again, that there'd be, I needed there to be a, a sort of a chase or an escape Um because I needed conflict and tension. And obviously without, without conflict and tension, there is no story. There's just people in places doing things mm. and talking to each other. It doesn't make a story. The three-part structure is everything I, everything we all write, whether or not we think it is, is in a three-part structure. We have the, the normal world from which they're going to go leave in pursuit of something. Now, in this case, the boys aren't particularly in pursuit of something. They are sent somewhere. It's actually against their wish, but they have to go anyway. Then we have the middle bit where they're getting used to the new world and things are going okay for a bit, and then they start to go wrong and increasingly worse in that world to the point where they decide they need to escape from it. And then the final act is them trying to get home and realising that home isn't where they think it is. Mm. But that, yes, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't write in a kind of three-act, beginning, middle, end. The middle mm. is 50% of the novel, the beginning's mm. 25, the end is 25. That's just kind of a rough maths. And it feels it. right. Because we've read so many books and we know how stories work. But for this, it is explicit. There is mm. there's home and then there's Albion and then there's the return to home, which isn't mm. home anymore. It ends at a point where you could leave it or it's also possible because it ends at a beginning in a way. This war is just coming. Does that mean it's open for you too as a writer? Is it a world that you 
want to explore further or do you feel you've said everything that you want to say about it? It's funny I haven't even thought of there being a sequel until a good friend of mine who's a primary school teacher I'd sent her a copy and she immediately she finished it a message saying when is the next book I need to know what happens I need to know what's going on with the war I was like well no that's not my job I don't I don't use your imagination it's not necessarily something I wanted to explore but I didn't want it to have a happy easy hooray they all lived happily ever after ending because that's not realistic at all it's it ends with the beginning it ends with people more people arriving the community is starting to do what it always needed to do but there is the war is literally only just begun and the concept of a happy ending is misleading I think it it leads all of us they from the Cinderella and they lived happily ever after after concept that if you find a handsome prince your life's fine I mean that's ridiculous and I didn't want it to work like that in this either I wanted them to know that it's something just as love is something that you work out every day living well and and being kind and helping each other is something you commit to every day and that this is going to carry on the war is not over and in the same way that people talk about when covid's over i don't think covid's ever going to really be over and there will always be more threats and always be more wars we just have to keep on keeping on and trying to do the right thing each time and that was the sense that was the reason it was left with this slightly mm-hmm. open ending it wasn't purely for me to be able to write a sequel am I sort of hearing from you that actually to write further into that story would somehow diminish not the message but the feeling that you leave the book with I think that would depend massively on how I left it at the end of a sequel there is a big thing that he he wants Ahmed. He he, mm. he misses Ahmed, and he's going to be looking for Ahmed just as the other people are looking for their Noah is looking for his father somewhere out there. There are a lot of unresolved things, so there is room for another story. And I would love to explore, particularly him trying to find Ahmed or something like that going on. But I'd need to again. I can't leave it in a in a hooray. Now that's sorted. It might even have a sadder ending. I can imagine that I would actually have to kill someone or or several people off, actually, actually, in order to make it feel realistic. I'm going to say then that reading between the lines, we might just have to wait to see what happens. (laughs) And in the meantime, we should just enjoy what we have, which is no man's land. So Thank you so much for joining me today, Joanna Nadin, in The Reading Corner. (laughs) Thank you. In The Reading Corner is presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please do leave a review for us. To find out about other projects, including an audience with events and the Exploring Children's Literature Summer School, visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.